you have your Bible today, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll continue our series there in Luke 15. And we will be looking at that entire chapter today, Luke 15, 1 through 32. We'll actually be looking at it this week and next week. So if there's something that I don't say this week, they're like, you absolutely had to say that. That hopefully, I'll say it next week, um, but at least wait to yell at me about it until after next Sunday, okay? So, um, Luke 15 will be our text. That's where we're continuing our series through the gospel according to Luke. We'll see three stories together today. And then, once you have your spot there in Luke 15, our Old Testament reading will be from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 to 16. So if you can have your spot there in Luke 15, and then back to Ezekiel 34. So the Old Testament reading will be read first, and the New Testament reading, and Jana is coming to read for us this morning. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, 
I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. For his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us. Would you help us to understand it and to see it and to know it, not just in our head, but in our hearts? So would you come, Holy Spirit, and teach us the love of God for us, that we might know how 
deep it is and how high it is and how wide it is. And would you make us secure in your love in such a way that we are ready to celebrate and to share it with others. Would you do this good work in us for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever lost something important? Probably everybody has, right? And you remember how you felt, and you remember what you did, right? Especially when you lose something important like the car keys when you're about to leave, right? Everything stops. Doesn't matter if your hair's done, doesn't matter if the kids are dressed, doesn't matter anything. You have to have those keys because without them, you can't go anywhere, right? When we lose something important, we stop, we drop everything, we look for it until we find it. And when we find it, <clears throat> we rejoice. Uh, if you've lost something here, it's probably in the coat room above the racks where the coats hang. So if you, if you think you've lost something important and you think you might have lost it here, that would be a great place to check just to add there for our own lost and found which becomes quite extensive after a while. When we lose something, finding it becomes all important, right? Where we don't see anything else anymore. And sometimes we can make even unwise decisions, right? Sometimes we are so fixed on finding something that seems important that we leave undone other important things. Have you ever done that? And it's like, but I have to, and then you realize, you know, maybe that wasn't as important as I thought. And that concept actually gets at kind of the heart of these stories. Because the God's love for us seems all out of proportion to what he came to find, to what was lost. And so we want to take some time together just to be amazed at God's love for us. If you're really used to the idea that God loves you, you probably need this message. <laughs> if you have a hard time believing that God could really love you, actually you, because of who you are and what you've done, then surely this chapter is for you. The big idea this morning is this, that we can be secure in God's love for us. We actually can be secure in God's love for us. And before we get to the, the story, or really the stories themselves, let's picture again the scene that Luke sets up in chapter 15. Jesus has just been teaching on the cost of discipleship as great crowds accompany him. <clears throat> and then in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't like that. Jesus isn't a very good religious teacher because he'd be teaching the people who were good at being religious. In effect, the Pharisees and the scribes, with their grumbling, 
saying, this man receives sinners and eats with, him, with them, what they're saying is that he shouldn't be doing that. He shouldn't be lavishing his love on people who don't deserve it, giving them welcome, receiving them, eating with them, symbolizing his acceptance of them, giving them salvation. That seems wrong to the Pharisees, and it still seems wrong to Pharisees today. So Jesus tells them a story. Actually, he tells them three and we'll mainly be looking today at what these three stories have in common, what they share. And then we'll be looking at some key differences between the third one and the first two next week. This is a chapter about being lost and found. The story of the lost sheep, the lost coin. And then the last story is one that has come down to us. It's known as the prodigal son. Now, prodigal in our common usage today often describes someone who has run off or gone a different direction than his family or community would have liked him to go. And that usage is entirely rooted in this story, much like how the modern usage of the word Samaritan, you remember when we talked about that when we got to the story of the good Samaritan, Samaritan would have meant something completely different to the people who first heard Jesus tell that story than it does today because our understanding has been colored by the story of the Good Samaritan being known for 2,000 years. And so a Samaritan is someone who helps people. A prodigal is someone who runs away. But that's because of this story. That's not what the word actually means. But it's used even down to there's a new show that started this fall called Prodigal Son where the son's going a different direction than his father. I think the father's like a mass murderer or something. And the prodigal, like, solves murders. Is that right? So, like, he, so he went the opposite direction of what his family wanted him to go. If you're that kind of prodigal, you know, good job. <clears throat> but even down to how we name a TV show now, Uh, is informed, actually, by Luke 15. This is the only place this story shows up in the Bible. If we didn't have the gospel according to Luke, we wouldn't know this story, and whatever TV is, whatever's going on in that show would be named something different, because we wouldn't have this concept of the prodigal son. But the word prodigal, what it actually means, it describes someone who is recklessly extravagant with money, someone who is a spendthrift, someone who spends massive amounts of money without thinking about the implications of it at all. And it makes sense that this could be called the prodigal son because that is exactly what that son did, right? He took his inheritance and he spent it all. He wasted it. That's the essence of what it means to be a prodigal in the the denotative sense. Just what the word means itself is that you spend like crazy. He's a waster. Tim Keller and others have argued that God ends up actually being the prodigal here. The father is really the prodigal. When thinking of that denotative meaning of the word, and that that prodigal God and his reckless 
love is actually the point of the story, not the prodigal son. And so we want to focus this week in our look at these three stories from Luke 15. We want to focus on God and his amazing love for us. We're going to see that his love for us truly is a reckless love. But it's not just reckless and spending money everywhere. It's specific. It's reckless, it's specific, and it's joyful. And because God's love for us is... (sighs) Excuse me. (laughs) Because it's reckless, because it's specific, and because it is joyful, we can be secure in God's love for us. So let's see first that God's love for us is reckless. Now, reckless love, again, is one that seems to be all out of proportion to the thing that is loved. Kind of like a kid who loses a toy, like a spork. (laughs) And if you haven't uh, seen Toy Story 4, I'm sorry. Right? They're going to great lengths to rescue a spork that doesn't want to be rescued because that spork means everything to a child. And anyone who has a child, or if you can remember back to your own childhood, you have experienced something like this, where you love something all out of proportion to its intrinsic value, right? You couldn't sell that thing for anything, right? But to the child, it is priceless because it is hers, because it is his. Inherently, the value is negligible. It's nothing, but to the child, it is invaluable. And so here, as Jesus responds to these Pharisees who say, you shouldn't be welcoming tax collectors. You shouldn't be welcoming sinners. Those aren't the kind of people you should be with. Those aren't the kind of people you should have come for. Jesus begins with the parable of the lost sheep. What man of you having a hundred sheep, but having lost one, doesn't leave the 99 and go after the one? Now this is the beginnings of an understanding of reckless love, right? When you have 99 sheep all together, is that more valuable than the one that is lost? Right? And yet the shepherd is is going. He's going to find the one. He says he leaves the 99. Where? In the open country. So it's not like he leaves them at home with other people to take care. He's leaving the 99 to go for the one. It seems out of proportion. It's just one. You still have 99. You still have 99% of your flock. He says, but I'm going after the one. The woman with her one coin missing out of the ten. She sweeps the house. She lights a lamp, which costs money because it uses oil. And she seeks diligently until she finds it. And worst or best of all, the father. The father truly displays a love that is reckless to 
toward his son. He seems to have his eyes fixed on the road that would lead his son home, but it's so much more than that, right? God's love for us is reckless because we were really lost, right? We didn't just innocently wander off like a sheep might. It's certainly not the coin's fault that it was lost. But when we get to the story of the sons, the reference to needing repentance that's come up already in verse 7, speaking of needing repentance, verse 10, speaking of a sinner who repents, when he gets to the last story, the parable of the sons, we begin to understand how badly that repentance is actually needed, right? Jesus makes this younger son about as bad as he could possibly be. I mean, how does he start out? In verse 12, the younger of them, those two sons, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, we're kind of used to this story. It's a story, if you've grown up as a Christian, you've been hearing your whole life. It's like, okay, this is what he does. He gets his inheritance early, and then he goes. But let's think about the implications of getting your inheritance early. All right, when do you get an inheritance? When somebody writes, right? You get your inheritance when somebody dies, And so for this young man to go to his father and say, give me my inheritance now. In effect, he's saying, dad, I don't need you. I don't love you. In fact, I don't even want you around anymore. If you were dead, this would be simpler because I could have what I want now. Could you imagine being spoken to like that? I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. It's like, well, I'm so glad I've invested so much in you over the years, son. Let me get right on that. So even at the beginning, before the son has run away, the father does something that seems wrong. That he certainly is not required to do. Right? The, the very next words just say, and he divided his property between them. He didn't have to do this. He's already kind of breaking the code. I mean, he's allowed to do it. He can do whatever he want, wants with his own property. But he does not have to in any way honor this request of his son. But he does. And so in, in those days, the older son would get the lion's share, would get a double portion. So if there are two sons, the older son would get two-thirds of it. The younger son would get one-third of it. And most likely, um, he didn't just give him cash. You know, it's not like, let me cash in a couple securities, um, and that'll be the, the right percentage, and then there you go. That, that's not how it worked. It would have been tied up in land. It would have been tied up in other forms of property that they owned. And so this younger son, as soon as he can, gathers all that he has. He gets everything and he turns it into cash as quickly as he can. And so now the father's wealth is diminished. It can't continue to grow because the son has it. 
Everything that he has now will become the older sons upon his death. But just, again, imagine, like, Dad, thanks for the memories. I want your money. And kind of tuck that away and remember it for how the father responds to his son. So then that son, so he, he, the father does what the son asks. The son liquidates everything, gathers everything he has, and he's like, see ya. I meant it. He took a journey, it says in verse 13, to a far country. He got away. It's like, I'm not going to be around here anymore. I'm not going to be under your rules. I'm not going to live the way you want me to live. I'm doing my thing. I'm doing it my way. Now, I'm sure none of us would ever do anything like that, especially no one who grows up around a church. Except there's this one time, <laughs> right? Um, I actually met, this is crazy, this is almost 20 years ago, traveling, uh, I was at a church in Michigan, and I was talking with an, an eight-year-old boy. You know, you just meet real quick, and like, hey, how old are you, buddy? Eight. Great. I can't wait till I'm 16. Okay, cool. Like, 16 sounds fun. I'll bite. Why can't you wait <laughs> until you are 16? Because when I'm 16, I'll be able to get my driver's license, I'll be able to get a car, and I can go anywhere I want, as fast as I want, and do anything I want, and no one's going to be able to tell me what to do. Right then, his dad walked in. He's like, hi, I think you guys maybe should talk or something. But this, I've... I've <laughs> Like, people usually figure that out by, like, 17 or 18 when they want to run off and do their own thing, but this, he was ready. He's, he's not even halfway there yet, right? He's eight years old, and he's like, I know what I'm doing, and no one is going to tell me what to do, right? And I'm trying to remind him, you know, you'll always live your whole life under authority, and, like, you'll never get out from under God's authority, and there will be police if, you know, if you're driving too fast, and... <laughs> But I'm not sure how much of it got through then. That kid's probably like, that kid's probably like 25 now. Um, so hope I don't have any update on that because I just <laughs> met him once. So sorry about that. There's no update. <laughs> There's no update. <laughs> I would call that church in Michigan. It's like, hey, is there a kid that probably went wild at about 17? No. But what that little kid was able to articulate is what happens in so many of our hearts, right? We laugh because it's cute and funny that a little kid could say that that clearly. But don't we do that? I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. Who are you to tell me? I know what I want. I know, I, I know what I need. And I'm sure the young man in Luke 15 thought he knew exactly what he wanted. He didn't think he was lost. He probably thinks he's on a journey of self-discovery. Right? He went off to find himself. But he was as lost as he 
could possibly be. But he doesn't know it yet because everything's still fine. He still has all the cash. And he lives wildly. He lives recklessly. He lives exactly the opposite of what any parent would want. As a friend of mine used to say, if you're going to be bad, it's going to get bad. And for the prodigal son, it indeed gets bad. In verse 14, when he'd spent everything, so now he has no money, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is bad, and it's even worse than what it sounds like to us. You go like, how can it be worse than what it sounds like, right? You're, you're feeding pigs. You're, you're wishing you could eat what the pigs get to eat. And in our culture today, sure, working in a pig pen would be bad. But in that day, and for a Jew, working in a pig pen was even worse. These were unclean animals. These are animals you shouldn't be around. You can't eat them. They, didn't, they weren't allowed to eat bacon. But they were unclean. They were the kinds of things you shouldn't be around. You certainly couldn't come before God. And so, again, think of these, the first people who are hearing this. You've got tax collectors and sinners around. You've got the Pharisees around. That's who these stories are actually aimed at, are the Pharisees. And they're hearing this story, and it's like, each step, this son becomes more and more repulsive. All right, so each detail that Jesus adds, it's like, well, yeah, let's get as far away as we can from any kind of association with this person. And that is exactly Jesus' point. This is about as low as it gets. And then in verse 17, he came to himself. He wakes up. You ever had that happen? You kind of, whoa, where am I? That happens sometimes when you're driving and thinking about something other than driving, right? How did I get to this light? And I'm glad that I'm sitting here instead of driving through it, right? Please tell me, that's, does that, anybody? Okay, yep, I see that hand. I see, thank you. I feel a little bit better about myself now. But it's like he'd been living in that kind of dream. And he wakes up and realizes where he is. He says, I can't live this way. I've got to go home. He comes to himself and comes up with a plan. Now his plan is actually not that great. 
Like, we're, we're used to thinking of that and going, okay, there it is. He came to himself, he repented, he went home to say sorry, and there's a sense in which that's true, but it's not a great, like, model of repentance. If we're like, let's, let's really have a good sermon on what repentance looks like. You're not going to this one. Right? Because what, what does he say? When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Okay, so he wants to eat. That's fine, right? It's not bad. So I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And so we're like, yeah, there's the repentance thing, right? But I've sinned against heaven, which is a euphemism for against God, and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This son does not yet understand his father's heart. He's not asking for his place back. Now, there's a sense in which he's right. He is not worthy to be called a son, right? But there's another sense he doesn't understand his father's heart at all. He's just asking for a place on the property where he can work, which, again, is probably not bad, but it certainly doesn't understand grace. It certainly doesn't understand the Father's reckless love for him. He doesn't get it. Now, in the way the world works, that's fine. Like, you know, I got to work my way back in. I got to earn your trust again. I've spent all the money. I don't have anything to pay for any food. I want to earn my keep. So again, it's, it's not all bad, but he's not yet casting himself on his father's mercy. He's not asking his father for forgiveness. And that's what makes the father's love here truly reckless and seem totally out of proportion. Because what does the father do even before he can say his plan? Because verse 20, he arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he cuts him off. <laughs> Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father, even before hearing the plan, even before knowing whether the repentance was just right or not, runs, embraces him, kisses him, puts a robe and a ring on him, and starts the party. This is a reckless love. In fact, we might look at it and go, this is a bad father. He's going to become an enabler. You can't welcome a son like that. Don't you remember? Don't you remember when he said, I wish you were dead? Like, you should. That was like the last time you guys spoke. 
don't you remember? And the father remembers. He knows. See, this is the opposite of what we would do. This is the opposite of what our cancel culture would do. In fact, I saw a joke this week in preparation about the prodigal son. It said, prodigal son kicked out again after old tweets resurface. <laughs> and it's funny because it's true. Because that's how we would tend to be. And that's certainly how our culture tends to be. Oh, you're this? Nope, you're done. Right? There are certain sins, and they change every decade or so. There are certain sins. If you're one of those, there's no coming back from that. There's no saying you're sorry enough. There's no acts of penance you can do that will resurrect your career, resurrect your reputation. What the prodigal son had done was something that there should have been no coming back from. And it's why he starts out saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just let me do some work around the farm. Just let me be on the property and have something to eat. I'm good with that. But he doesn't understand his father's heart and he doesn't understand the point and the value of being a son. Because the value in being a son isn't about getting the father's stuff. It's about being a son of the father and having that relationship with him. He doesn't really ever quite understand that in this story. The older son certainly doesn't understand that in the story as well. But it's not just for them, and it's not just for those out there in our culture. It's for us. The older brother, he surely knows that the father's response is not the appropriate one. It's not what he should do. But this father doesn't care about being appropriate. He cares about his son. And his love is reckless. And so is our Father's love. Praise the Lord that he did not do what was appropriate for our sins. He did not do what was fair. Right? Our kids have a strong sense. Right? It's like anger and inside out. He really wants things to be fair. The thing is, we don't really want things to be fair. If things were fair, we would be done. Like this son should have been done. But Jesus, instead of distancing himself from us, like, oh yeah, okay, now pigs are involved in the story. Now he's not even doing repentance right. Now he still doesn't seem to understand the heart of the Father. Jesus, instead of distancing himself from us, came for us. That's the heart of what John read from Ezekiel 34, where God's people had run away 
and run away and run away, always going their own way instead of following the Lord who had made them and who had made them his people. Even the shepherds of those days, the leaders in Israel, they were feeding themselves and destroying the sheep. And so the Lord says, I myself will come down. I myself will rescue them. I will come for the lost. I will bind up the broken. I will carry them on my shoulders. Jesus comes for us before we come to him. Truly, as the Apostle John says, we love because he first loved us. God didn't do what was fair, and that's eternally good news for us. He displayed reckless love in sending his one and only son to come and to live the perfect life that we were supposed to but haven't. And not only to live a perfect life, but to die a sacrificial death on the cross, taking all our sin in his body on that tree, paying the price for every bit of our rebellion, even our poor repentance, even our poor obedience when we get back home. We don't know how the son did after he was welcomed back. We know how we are. He took all our sin on himself and paid for every bit of our rebellion. And then he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead on the third day, showing his power over sin and death and Satan, everything that would hold us, everything that would destroy us. And he gives life now to everyone who hopes in him, everyone who gives up on working their way back to him, everyone who gives up on just needing bread to eat, but seeing Jesus as the beautiful Savior. Truly, this is a reckless love. It's a love that seems all out of proportion to the object of love. Why should he do that for you? Why should he do that for me? But the good news of the gospel is that this reckless love isn't just in general. He really did do it for you. And he really did do it for me. His love is not only reckless, his love is specific. He doesn't just love sinners in general. God's not just like, oh, I, I love all the sinners out there. And we can think, sure, everyone's a sinner and God loves sinners, but, but you know, not me. Not for real. Not with who I've been. Not with what I've done. But that's part of Jesus' point, is that God loves specifically. Right in verse 4, there was how many sheep that were lost? One. Just one. And he came for that one. He goes to find it. And when he calls his friends to celebrate, 
It's because I have found my sheep that was lost. I found him. That the one, the one that was lost, I found him. How many coins did the woman lose? One. It's one sheep, one coin. And just one that was lost is worth having a party over. Both, to- both stories tell us explicitly there's joy over one sinner who repents. In verse 7, Jesus says there's even more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in the last story, that joy is over the son who was lost and is found. It wasn't just this in general, the father loves all these people. He loves his son. God's love is reckless and his love is specific. Jesus came to rescue you. He didn't just die for sinners in general. He came to save a people who would turn from their sins and trust in him. He loves you. He loves me. Not because of what we've done. Not because even of what we would do. It's not that he looked down and saw, you know, if I save that person, they'll, they just have so many gifts that he gave anyway, and they'll be so ready to use them for my glory. He can, he can do that with anybody, however he wants, whenever he wants. He didn't choose you because you're so talented or so great or so much better than someone else, or that you would follow him just right after you came to faith. No, he chose you because he chose you. He loves you because he loves you. He set his love on us when we were anything but lovely. His love is reckless, his love is specific, and his love is joyful. His love is a joyful love. In all three stories, as we Again, pursue the commonalities in them today. In each case, they call. The shepherd calls his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And Jesus says, There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The woman with the coin calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me. I've found the coin that I had lost. And Jesus says again, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the Father starts the party, invites everyone, says, my son, was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. God is not like us. And that is a really good thing. It's hard for someone like the lost son to be secure in God's love. 
Like it would have been hard for the tax collectors and sinners in the first century to be secure in God's love. But Jesus is saying no matter how far you've gone, no matter how long you've stayed there, no matter how many times you have stumbled, you are always welcomed home. You are mine. I gave my life for you. Your worth isn't found in you. He loves us all out of proportion (laughs) to who we are. And when we come home, he doesn't say, I told you so. I mean, how tempting would that be? I mean, again, imagine yourself as the father for a moment. Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me all your money. Then he goes off and spends it. All. And then when he finally comes over the horizon, his plan is to work his way back into your good graces. The father doesn't for a minute say, I told you so. He doesn't say, son, I hope you've learned your lesson. He doesn't say, son, you have permanently embarrassed the family. You've diminished our property. You've diminished our standing in the community. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't take the son's deal and let the son work his way back. The son's not on probation. He doesn't now become like a servant. He's a son. And for some of us, we wonder whether the Father really loves us with a joy like that. Because we know what we are when we're alone. We know what we are when things don't go the way they should. We know how weak our faith feels. And perhaps you think, you know, God, yeah, he, sure, I mean, I know he loves me because Jesus and the cross and all that. But like, he can't really like feel love for me. And he certainly, when he thinks of me, does not feel joy about me. This story tells us a different story than the one we tell ourselves, and it's not the only one. And one of the minor prophets, Zephaniah, right near the end of the Old Testament. Again, remember who Israel is and what Israel has been. Zephaniah three fourteen to seventeen says, "Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O Israel! Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem! The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion! Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst." a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is our God. This is our Father. His love for you is reckless. His love for you is specific. It really is for you. 
and his love for you is joyful. That when you come home to him again, (laughs) he welcomes you. He sings over you. He runs to you. He embraces you. He celebrates. This is who he is. So how do we respond to this? Realize God's love for you. All this is really real. Jesus is telling stories to make a point. And it's a point that the Pharisees failed to grasp, but the tax collectors and sinners were beginning to get it. That what Jesus had already said before, <laughs> that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or as we'll see later in chapter 19, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or as Paul put it in Romans 5, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Realize God's love for you, that it truly is reckless. The gospel comes home to you and you realize that on your own you have no way of getting back to God. Not a chance. But that Jesus has done everything that is necessary to bring us home to him. When we're thinking about repentance, this chapter can actually become an encouragement. Do you ever wonder whether you've repented well enough? whether you've been sorry enough for your sins, whether that's before you were converted, whether that's after becoming a Christian. Did I, did I do it right? Did I pray hard enough? Did I believe enough? Did I say the right words? The son was very concerned about saying the right words. But the father wasn't persuaded by a speech. And our Father's heart is not persuaded by our flowery speeches either. He wants us. And so you can repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Perhaps we need to repent of wanting our Father's gifts and not himself. It's tempting for earthly sons, and it's tempting for us as spiritual sons. We're so glad that we get every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus and forget that the best spiritual blessing is knowing God himself. And then as we're feeling (laughs) conviction over that, keep believing God's love, right? (laughs) That he loves you even then. Right? The father loved this son even when the son said, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. That's how hard, that's how deep the father's love is for the son. I know that some here are waiting for a prodigal to come home. 
Another way we keep believing God's love is to keep praying, to keep hoping. And instead of being ready to, to lecture or to teach, being ready to welcome. Because by God's grace, we should live according to God's reckless love. This is what should set us apart as Christians. This is what the Pharisees were all upset with Jesus about. Because when we really view ourselves as having been lost and then having been found by the amazing, reckless, specific, joyful love of God, then we are free to forgive those who have wronged us. Even those who have wronged us deeply. We don't have to hold that over them anymore. We don't have to see them pay when we know that Jesus has paid it all. And this is how we can look different from the world. It's not just transactional. It's not just, well, if you do enough of the things to show me that you're good, then, then I can move toward you. If the father waited for that, he would have never moved toward his son at all. If the Lord had waited for us to move, he would have never moved toward us at all. Do you know God loves you? Are you ready to love like God loves you? If you want someone in your life to know God's reckless love for them, show God's reckless love to them in the way you love them. We can be secure in God's love for us because we have God's word on it. And as we become secure in God's love, we are free to share his love for others because indeed all our stories are that we were lost. We were hopelessly incapable of getting ourselves home. But Jesus, God himself, came for us picked us up, put us on his shoulders, and is carrying us even now all the way home. What grace. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that you would love us. Would you help us because for much of our days, we can tend to act like, of, of course you love us. That's what you're supposed to do. And we can go back and forth between feeling entitled and then after sinning again, wondering how you could ever accept us. Would you help us to know your love in its reality? And in knowing your love, would you change us by your spirit as you drive the truth of the gospel down deep into our hearts? Would you do this for your glory and for our joy and for the joy of many? In Jesus' name, amen.